Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. The one place to be for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It is the morning after the night before, ladies and gentlemen. And of course, we will be talking about the Northern Ireland Brexit deal. Uh, brokered by Rishi Sunak and uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, as we like to call her. The problem with it is, of course, what does it actually mean? Will it actually change anything? Will it change your life? Uh, if you live in Northern Ireland, the answer is probably yes. Uh, but what was really interesting to me yesterday was the whole choreography around it all, how it was all so specially tied up. You might as well have put a ribbon on it and presented it to somebody uh, as a birthday present. It was all terribly nicey-nicey, wasn't it? It might be a good thing, uh, but let us look into it. Anne Widdicombe joins us this morning, former Conservative MP and former Brexit Party MEP. We'll see what she makes of it. My basic take on it is this. Um, it's probably a significant thing that Britain and the European Union are getting on better than they used to. However, um, I would still say that you have to be extremely careful who you trust in Brussels. I think you have to be extremely careful about where it all goes from here. And if you are in Northern Ireland, uh, there are certainly some people who are welcoming the deal and there are some people who are still being a little bit cagey about it. It's definitely a better place to be uh, than where we were, which was basically nowhere, because the European Union were making it very difficult. Now, the European Union seems to be making it a bit easier. And you'd have to ask the question, well, why is that? There are other more important stories to talk about, though. To wit, uh, 23,000 people dying as a result of A&E departments. Excess deaths we're talking about. People who shouldn't have died, who didn't need to die. All I can say about that is welcome to the National Health Service. Whatever next. Also, we're going to be talking about vigilantes and people who have decided to take the law into their own hands. Not so much in the way of punishing people or threatening people, but more in the way of policing their own neighbourhoods. There's a whole group of people down in Portsmouth uh, who are so fed up that the police are not doing their jobs that they have decided to start patrolling their own neighbourhoods to try and dissuade people from committing crimes. I think it's something we're going to see more and more of. It's something that um, we'd like to make sure you don't do for the wrong reasons, but you can absolutely understand why local councillors and local police authorities are actually saying, as long as you're not doing any harm to anyone, you know, we don't mind you doing it. 0344 499 1000. Mr. Pothole joins us as well because uh, the latest news from the great government that we have uh, is that they're going to start taxing you depending on what sort of tyres you have on your car. And if your tyres go into any potholes, you might be in a really, really bad place. Also, Laura Dodsworth is here. She's going to be talking about a great many things, including, of course, uh, the Wuhan COVID leak and whether or not that actually happened. Sebastian Gorka joins us from West, uh, Washington, D.C. as well uh, on the latest news from the United States of America. It's all happening, and it's all happening right here. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, the one place to find common sense, the one place to navigate your way through the treacherous waters of international politics. Yesterday, uh, Rishi Sunak announced, along with Ursula von der Leyen, uh, the new Brexit breakthrough deal, as they're being called. Uh, he was with her, of course, in Windsor and is now being called uh, the Windsor Protocol or the Windsor Statement. Uh, King Charles was also involved and lots of people getting very worked up about that. But let's talk to Anne Whittacombe and see what she makes of it all and what she thinks is actually going on uh, with this particular deal. Anne, a very good morning to you. Good morning to you. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm very interested in your take on this because it, event, it, it sort of varies depending on who I talk to, uh, to a great betrayal of Brexit, uh, to a magnificent negotiation of Brexit, to somewhere in between. What do you think? 
Well, it's certainly not a magnificent uh, negotiation uh, of Brexit. I must say, as I was listening to Rishi Sunak yesterday, listening to uh, the EU apparently having given away on every last thing, uh, I was asking myself, well, why would they? And then, of course, when you look at the detail of the treaty, as a lot of people are now doing, uh, you realise that they haven't. I mean, take the much-vaunted Stormont breakdown. I mean, Rishi, you know, was hailing that as as something um, utterly decisive. No, it isn't. You can only use it in exceptional circumstances, which means that in the normal run of things, Stormont will have to go on accepting uh, EU law. Then he said, blandly, we're taking back control of our own VAT. I cheered. Then you look at the detail. Yes, we'll be able to set, this is an example, we'll be able to set the VAT on uh, alcohol consumed in pubs, but the EU will set the VAT on alcohol sold in supermarkets. You know, that sort of detail, of course, was never going to be given yesterday. And what he was relying on was an enormous euphoric reaction uh, that would somehow make people sound as if they were niggling when they look at the detail. Yes. But I reckon that as this uh, proposed agreement is analysed line by line, we're going to see that it amounts to not very much. It does amount to something. I, you know, I'm not saying he's got nowhere, but it amounts to not very much. And what really worries me is he said as if it was a great triumph. This was going to be locked into the Vienna Convention. It was going to be part of international law. That means that when we realise just how bad a deal it is, we're going to have a devil of a job to get out of it. Well, what I found was interesting yesterday was, was amongst all of the people that I spoke to about it, I sort of came to the conclusion that it's a bit of a, uh, if you'll forgive the footballing analogy, a kind of a John Terry moment uh, where somebody's running at the end and kind of decided to throw his hands around the cup and hold it up and go, I've got it, I've got the trophy. Um, when in fact, you know, everybody knows nothing really is going to change dramatically. Uh, nothing is really uh, different between the relationship of, of Rishi Sunak and, and the European Union. They might like him a bit more than they, they disliked Boris Johnson. Um, but he may not well be in power for very much longer anyway. Um, and it doesn't really affect anybody outside of Northern Ireland. Um, that is uh, absolutely true. Uh, I mean, I think that's a, a very uh, straightforward analysis of what's gone on. Um, I think only a fool makes the same mistake twice, and the government is making the same mistake twice. Uh, it made it with Boris when the thinking quite honestly was, although they would never have admitted it, any deal will do. You know, let's get Brexit done. Any deal will do. And we have this terrible business of a border down the Irish Sea. And now the same thinking is there. You know, Northern Ireland is a perpetual irritant, a perpetual problem. Any deal will do. This is effectively what Rishi Shunak has taken to the table in negotiating mm. uh, a defeatist attitude, uh, which, of course, will never be matched by his rhetoric. His rhetoric will always be tough. Um, but effectively, you know, the EU have given away very, very little in need. Yes. And the point about, I suppose, I mean, he's, we're watching him currently in uh, Belfast. He's addressing a crowd there in County Antrim. He's uh, explaining his deal to them. I think, you know, he could probably be accused of being slightly over-enthusiastic about what he's got here. He's trying to make out that it's perhaps something that it isn't. The thing that I found amazing yesterday was when he ran through, when he was in the Commons, all of the things that you apparently couldn't do after Brexit in Northern Ireland. It sounded hopeless, didn't it? It sounded ridiculous. It was almost as though he was admitting to the deal not being done in the first place. And he made it sound worse than it actually was. But, you know, I never thought I'd hear the Prime Minister of this great nation of ours discussing 
English sausages and seed potatoes in the chamber of the world's uh, cradle of democracy. Well, I, and that is a very good demonstration of just how hopeless that deal was. The clamour, as I say, was to get Brexit done. Any deal will do. Uh, whereas, in fact, what we should have done, what the Brexit party said at the time, and what I still believe, is we should have done a no-deal Brexit and then built a deal on the basis of that. And indeed, I think one of the reasons why the EU has given us anything at all, which isn't much, uh, is that uh, the protocol bill, um, which was paused while these negotiations carried on, the protocol bill would have put us in a position of just tearing up vast quantities of the treaty. Uh, what Rishi Sunak has effectively done now is agreed that we can't do that. That's bad news. Yeah. I mean, is it not good news that at least um, if relations are better between Downing Street uh, and the European Commission, there could be some kind of you know, chink of light that makes things slightly easier in other ways of dealing with Europe? Oh, there, there, there is good news. I know there is good news in the agreement itself. You know, I'm not, I'm not claiming that Russia hasn't got us anything. Let, let me make that very clear. Yeah. What it's got is precious little and, and not worth all this uh, euphoria. Uh, obviously, you need good relations with the EU, but it is the EU who have quite consistently made those relations bad, by penalising us for leaving. We all remember Barnier saying, when he didn't realise he was being recorded, that Northern Ireland, isolating Northern Ireland, was an opportunity to bring pressure to bear on us. He said it in terms. Uh, and so um, I don't think we're at fault for relations with the EU, uh, and we're still horribly at their mercy in many ways in Northern Ireland. And what I want to do is, is, is just a break yeah. Uh, from the EU, build good trading relations with them as we do with the rest of the world. But the rest of the world doesn't intervene in our internal affairs and the EU shouldn't either. No, exactly right. And I said to myself yesterday as I read the initial kind of, you know, uh, press briefing uh, that they've suddenly solved every problem in Northern Ireland because they've now invented a red channel and a green channel, rather like we used to have at uh, airports in this country when you used to come back from places to see whether you had anything to declare. I thought to myself, well, if it was that easy, why has it taken this long? And the reason it's taken this long is because the EU has never wanted to grant it. Yes, that's quite true. In fact, it was Boris who first talked about green and red channels, you know, and said, said this was a way through. Uh, and the EU weren't at all receptive. So, uh, and what they're doing now is, I, well, Rishi Shunak is playing the clever game of making something sound absolutely wonderful, which is, in fact, fairly minimal. There is something there. You know, there is something there. It's better than where we were yesterday, yes. but not enough to guarantee yeah. a, a future for Northern Ireland in, in the UK. Yes, because the other uh, truism, which is uh, something I've always said about Northern Ireland, because I've been told that this is absolutely true, that by far and away the vast majority, and I'm talking 90-odd percent of goods that go from GB into Northern Ireland, remain in Northern Ireland. They don't go anywhere else. So there's an absolute shibboleth. I think it's 1% of all um, items imported into Northern Ireland end up in the Republic. So it's a pointless uh, conversation anyway. Yeah, and it, it was all about making our lives difficult. And the EU in private said that. Uh, and uh, that was what they were trying to do. There was never any need for a border down the Irish Sea in the first place. There no. is a border. We know where the EU ends and the UK begins but we mustn't turn it into a hard border. And the EU itself, the EU itself said in 2017, there'd be no need for a hard border. We 
we could do it through technology. Yeah. Well, when did that become abandoned? Yes, well, exactly right. I mean, I actually got quite enthusiastic at one point um, yesterday thinking maybe we could introduce this red channel and green channel for the for the migrants as they come in and land on Dover's beaches. We could have the red channel for those who don't have any papers and the green channel for those who do. Um, nice thought, but in practice, I think most of them do not come with papers. <laughs> oh, well, then they'll all be in the red channel. Simple. Uh, stay with us, Anne, if you will. We'll, we'll take a little bit of Rishi Sunak now. Uh, he's in uh, County Antrim, as we hear, uh, as we see. Let's see what he's got to say. Parents are in work. So the absolute best way, if you look at, if you look at the statistics and you look at what happened, you are something like four or five times less likely to be in poverty as a child if your parents are in work. It's that striking, it's that powerful. And we've done a really good job of that over the last several years. Uh, the number of children growing up in families where nobody works is down by almost a million. So there's something like 750,000 fewer children growing up in a situation like that, which is brilliant. Uh, and that's why there are hundreds of thousands of fewer children now in poverty today than there were several years ago, which is something that we can celebrate. But of course, we've got to do more. So we've got to make sure that we keep their parents in work, support them into work. That's why, as we talked about, investments here. That's real, right? It's not just about business. Right. It's not about yeah, the there are less children living in poverty. The entire family is now on the breadline because they can't afford to pay the electricity bill. Never mind. Uh, we'll come back to Rishi Sunak in a minute. He's in County Antrim uh, talking to some people at a Coca-Cola factory, apparently. Uh, we'll be getting more from Anne Whittacombe, of course, as well. Uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, the deal, Brexit... What's going on? 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk TV. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Anne Whittacombe uh, about the deal that was brokered yesterday by Rishi Sunak. He's over in Antrim explaining it. He explained it to the House of Commons last night. Uh, he had the press conference, of course, in Windsor. Anne, you'll be writing your column uh, for the Daily Express, I guess, today. Um, will you be addressing the issue of King Charles and his involvement in this um, PR exercise? Because, I mean, I think it really largely was a PR exercise. I had initially uh, focused on that, but then as details of the deal came through, uh, I switched the emphasis uh, and I looked instead uh, at you know how we were all being fooled by right. something that didn't actually match the rhetoric that's surrounding it. But the, the, the issue of, of the king being involved in this is actually important. Now, you know, if this deal goes wrong, as it's very likely to, uh, and Northern Ireland continues to be a problem, um, it isn't going to have helped that the king was shown shaking hands with Ursula von der Leyen, who is not a head of state. The EU is not a state. Uh, and really, she it has just no thinks it is. Oh, well, it, it, it is determined so to be. It's got its own flag. It's trying to build its own army, yeah. with which we are complicit and shouldn't be. Uh, and so, but she is not a head of state. I mean, it is as simple as that. Uh, and uh, I, I think that it was wrong of Rishi to involve the monarch. I, that was just wrong. I know now that Buckingham Palace and Number 10 are arguing about whose idea it was. It doesn't matter. It shouldn't have happened. No, indeed. Um, but it looks as though it's being accepted. I mean, do you, do you see how it is that certain members of the Tory party who were very anti um, the European Union, very, very hard Brexiteers, have now seemingly softened their stance because we're told that um, most of the ERG has kind of melted away. Um, most of the um, hardline Brexiteers are going along with this. Um, is it because they're fed up waiting? Is it because they think this is as good as it gets? 
It may be because they think it's as good as it gets, but I suspect that we shall see uh, a change of mood. Because as this treaty is actually studied, if the DUP come out and say, sorry, we can't accept it, and this is why, and spell it out, then I think the ERG will be in a very difficult position if they say, well, calm down, dear, that doesn't matter, you know, any deal will do. Uh, I think they'll be in a very difficult position. Mm. So I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't quite a mood change. And don't forget also the role of the press in all of this. You know, last night, all they had to report was what Rishi Shunak told them. But their experts are now looking at this deal. Um, and, you know, I think we can expect to see some adverse comment in the press in future days. Yes. Well, of course, the leader of the opposition, uh, Keir Starmer, Sir Keir Starmer, has obviously agreed to go along with it without reading it. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, well, he, extraordinary, right? <laughs> yeah. He said that he had a sight of the, of, of the Prime Minister's statement. What he didn't say was that he had a sight of the agreement. And if he hasn't, then he should never in a million years have said that he would no. go along with it. But I mean, we know, you know, that he, the Labour has been saying for a long time that they would endorse the deal um, and embarrass the Prime Minister possibly by getting it through on Labour votes, though that may not still be the case. Uh, so they're playing politics. And it's all very irresponsible because in the end, in the end, you know, the wrong deal will threaten Northern Ireland's place in the Union. If you want to save the Union, you don't want this deal. Right. So what could go wrong with this deal, do you think, then? Oh, well, I think what will go wrong is that gradually people will begin to realise that not much has changed. I mean, I pointed out the, the, the VAT situation. I pointed out the Stormont break. Um, but actually, very, very little has changed. There's an awful lot of window dressing. Um, so uh, that is, uh, then people will say, well, look, we want this put right. And we'll say, well, we can't. We've locked this thing into the Vienna Convention. We can't put it right. Uh, and gradually, I think it will become more and more the feeling in Northern Ireland, oh, this is hopeless, you know, we might as well belong to the EU, which is what the EU wanted all along. Well, the other interesting uh, sort of remark that I heard yesterday was from some somebody, an Irish commentator, saying that it could well be that in the next election, which I think is within the next year or so in uh, the Republic, it could end up with a, with a Sinn Féin-run government. Um, which could also change things quite dramatically as far as the United Ireland conversation goes. Yes, but that's always been a danger. That that much is is nothing new. Uh, I am less bothered about what's going on in the Republic than I'm bothered between what is going on in the UK. Uh, and what is going on in the UK is yet another, yet another sellout for the sake of getting the semblance of an agreement. That is what is going on. And that is what I think is dangerous. And if the DUP still go on refusing to power share, then this isn't going to work. Well, that's exactly uh, right. That's well, that's the, that's the real problem, isn't it? If the DUP don't like this deal to such an extent that they refuse to, to, to form a government, then what happens? Well, then what happens is more of the same, as I've been saying throughout. Mm. Uh, and uh, no resolution uh, and a, a politically divided Northern Ireland. Uh, and uh, a UK that simply isn't treating them as the rest of the UK is. There should be no difference at all between our treatment of Northern Ireland and our treatment of the Isle of Wight. There should be no difference when it comes to trade and rules and laws and taxes. There should be no difference. 
exactly right. One final thing, just before we let you go, breaking news uh, for you, Anne. Isla Bryson, otherwise known as uh, Adam Graham, the trans rapist, jailed for eight years in Scotland today. Uh, you're a former prisons minister. I mean, obviously, it will now be as a result of uh, uh, Nicola Sturgeon's intervention um, that he serves the time in a man's prison, in a male prison, which is entirely as it should be. Um, eight years, enough time? Well, that's a matter for the courts. I mean, the, the thing here is I do not understand uh, why he was ever, why it was ever even contemplated that he could serve his time in a woman's prison. I mean, it really is cloud cuckoo land. Mm. It's Alice in Wonderland. I can't believe that future generations looking back will be able to make any sense of it at all. They'll say, what? You know, what were our ancestors doing? Yeah. Uh, and that I've never understood. As for the eight years, that, as I say, uh, is a matter for the courts. We're getting into the habit recently of trying to second-guess the courts, um, and sometimes they get it wrong. Uh, but uh, that's a matter for them. Yeah, I mean, I think they get it wrong because the structures of sentencing are yes. wrong and have been yes. wrong for a very long time, which is not necessarily the court's fault. But I think they could do with a bit of a revamp, couldn't they? Ah, now, if you read my Express column that's coming out tomorrow, you'll find that I, I, always I, say, do. Exactly, you'll find that I say exactly that point. Well, so, listen, uh, I can't believe... And I can't believe we've reached so many points of agreement today. Normally, you're scolding me for something or other. Well, I mean, I, I do feel very strongly that you shouldn't have politicians intervening in the justice system. You know, you've got the problem at the moment that Dominic Raab is being asked by a family not to allow a particular release when the system allows him to be released. Now, my argument in tomorrow's column is um, we shouldn't do this case by case. We should actually fundamentally change the law yeah. around sentencing. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Good to talk to you, Anne. Thank you very much. We look forward to reading your column in Daily Express tomorrow. Uh, that's Wednesday, every Wednesday. Anne Whittacombe, a regular on this show and a woman who talks an awful lot of sense. She's worried uh, that this uh, story that Rishi Sunak is trotting out uh, will unravel. Let's have another listen to what he's got to say. It's a fantastic agreement that delivers on all the things people care about. So now I hope that they do see it and see that and then can find a way to come back together and that's what Chris wants to see, it's what I want to see, it's what all of you want to see, it's what you deserve. And what we've done though is empower that assembly even more with this new Stormont break that I talked about. I mean even more incentive to get back in. So for all the people who said well we don't feel like we've got enough sovereignty in this situation, that there's a democratic deficit with this EU, we've corrected it. We've put more power in the hands of Stormont, in those very people. So, they, you know, but they need to get back in. They need to get back in so they can use those powers. We've provided the means now, and I hope that with time and space, they will see that that's the right way forward. And I, I absolutely want to give them the time and space and work with them and answer their questions. But what you want to see is what I want to see. And I think we can now see a way that that can be possible again. Right, yes. Good morning. Hi, we've already addressed this morning about poverty and children in Northern Ireland. Um, for our more vulnerable, for those who can't go out to work, the energy scheme was essential. Um, was it successful? And is there any more help coming for the people of Northern Ireland? Yes. Um, gosh, this has been the biggest challenge over the last year that everyone has been grappling with. Yep, protocol issues aside, is the cost of living. Right? You guys know, like for a year, every time you open up a bill, you see an email, you're like, oh my gosh, where did that come from? Right? And it just got worse and worse and worse. Right? And that's why, that's why my first promise that I made this year when I, as Prime Minister, I sort of made a speech, which hopefully some of you at least saw some of, but I made five promises 
to the public. The first one was to halve inflation, because that is the thing that is driving up everyone's bills, particularly with energy. And that's why the question right at the beginning, we've got a brand new department for energy security now, because we've got to have cheaper forms of energy here at home. That's the best long-term way to deal with the problem. But in the short term, we do have to help. And that's why this year we've provided an extraordinary amount of help, billions and billions of pounds. You know about the £600 that's gone to all households here. Um, and we've got more support for the most vulnerable households. That is not ending. We are going to carry on supporting people over this coming financial year as well. So the most vulnerable are going to get hundreds and hundreds of pounds again through the welfare system. Pensioners are going to get extra help. Those who are disabled are going to get extra help. I announced lots of that as Chancellor, and the new Chancellor has continued that for another year. Uh, and on top of that, the government is still continuing to cap energy bills. That's what the energy price guarantee is. It means that whatever happens, the government is just going to step in and cap the maximum that anyone will pay. So that is a really big statement of support to everybody. And on top of that, we've got extra support for the most vulnerable because it's right that we always have them in our mind as well. And then long term, with our new department, with brilliant grant chaps, we're going to have more offshore wind, more renewable energy, which is going to bring bills down and make us more secure at home. Um, but don't worry, we are not going to let anyone get left behind between now and then. Uh, and the good news is that the plan is working. Inflation looks like touchwood. <laughs> the worst of it is behind us. We're on the downward Sorry. track. And that's um, why I don't know where to start with all of that, really. Uh, the good news is the plan is working. Uh, no, it isn't. Uh, we're going to keep supporting you. Uh, no, you're not. Uh, we're going to keep finding money to give to the vulnerable people. Yeah, from other people like us who are not getting the help. Uh, and, of course, brilliant Grant Shapps. I mean, where do you even start? Uh, this is Talk TV. I mean, Rishi Sunak there uh, making out that everything is rosy in the garden. The garden has frozen over. Everything has wilted, right? There's no water in the tank. There's no earth in the ground. And in fact, you might as well have concreted the garden over, to be honest. 0344 499 1000. Are you buying any of this stuff? I mean, yes, it may well be that we are better off now than we were yesterday, as Anne Whittacombe said, with uh, the EU deal. And it may well be that it's better to be nice and friendly and cosy with Ursula von der Leyen uh, than it is to be throwing, uh, you know, arrows at her. But I'm not convinced. And Anne Whittacombe said it could still all go wrong. We might be uh, out, not out of the woods yet. We shall see. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, uh, because, of course, uh, everything is not so well uh, in the world of the trade unions, uh, there's another teacher strike coming on Thursday. Let's talk now uh, to Mark Lahane, Head of Education at the Centre for Policy Studies, a former head teacher, of course, as well. Mark, very good morning to you. Good morning. I've sort of lost track with all the strikes these days. I, I don't even bother trying to register who's on strike when, but I know that there's a strike on Thursday because I got another email from my son's school to tell me that they were shutting because they wouldn't be sure how many teachers were actually going on strike. So the teachers are still carrying out this ridiculous and what I think is rather punishing deal whereby they don't inform the schools that they work in whether they're not going to be coming in because they're going to be going on strike. Yeah and that's really disappointing when teachers are doing that obviously legally it is a teacher's right it's anybody's right to not tell their employer if they're going on strike or not but um, traditionally what really lovely teachers do is they do give their head teacher the heads up if they're going to be in or not so they can plan accordingly and actually you, you've talked about strikes on Thursday there are strikes across England and Wales today tomorrow and Thursday in different regions mm. and the National Education Union has asked its members to do this to try and maximise the disruption across the country, maximise the headlines they can get. Again, that's their right, but that's really, really hard for people trying to organise work, trying to organise childcare. 
What is interesting, though, is it will be... I'm interested to see whether the strikes are strongly supported this time round as before. Obviously, we don't have any firm data, but anecdotally, I'm aware of quite a few friends of mine who did strike last time mm. uh, when the whole country was on strike aren't doing it this week because I think some of them felt that last time it wasn't as effective as they might have hoped. But also, I think they're more optimistic that the government will be able to pull something out of the hat which they'll be happier with. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, with each day that goes on these strikes, and I, I count the, the, both the nurses, uh, the paramedics, uh, the train drivers, um, the train workers, and now the teachers, I think the public are less sympathetic with every single strike that happens. So the public, even if they were sympathetic to the teachers, which I don't think they are, will be less sympathetic this time around as well. I think that's entirely possible. We certainly saw it with the train drivers, the support from the public before their first set of strikes was quite high. It's really come down. What's been really heartening about the way the Royal College of Nursing have been approaching things is they've actually been working with the NHS to coordinate which of their members are in and out to make sure the NHS can keep on running. It would have been lovely if the teaching union had done that, but clearly they haven't. And they get, you know, my worry all the way along, aside from the impact on young people who deserve an education, is that these strikes are going to end up undermining the trust and faith that families have in teachers. Teaching is a really well-trusted profession, rightly so. I think teachers did a fantastic job the last few years supporting kids through the pandemic. And my worry is these strikes just undermine all that goodwill and take you back to the beginning again. Well, I think what it also undermines is any kind of discipline inside of the school because the kids themselves will see uh, that, that their teachers are not bothering to turn up for work. So they would say, I would imagine, well, why the hell should I do anything you tell me? You didn't even turn up yesterday. Yeah, and in fact, I think it's something like one in four pupils in English schools at the moment are what we call persistent absentees. They're missing more than 10% of their uh, time at school so far. And that's one of the biggest challenges we've got in our school system right now, getting more kids into school more frequently. Yeah. And it puts you in a really difficult position as a teacher to say to kids, you need to be in school. If recently you've, you've shut the school down or you've been on strike yeah. yourself and not been in school. So, I, again, it's another reason why I've always been worried about these strikes, even though I'm quite sympathetic to some of the concerns teachers have, whether it's about pay or working conditions. Yes. I mean, interestingly, I think since the last time you and I spoke, I interviewed a, um, a headmaster of a primary school in Essex um, who was saying that they had to let some teachers go. And when we got right down to the nitty gritty of why that was, it was because they'd had a pay rise. So the teachers who were in the school had had a pay rise, which was found in the budget from the school. But then they worked out they didn't have enough money, so they actually had to let go of some of the teachers. And so it was a bit ironic, in fact, wasn't it? Well, again, in most businesses, um, in the private sector, you would look at how much money you've got, you'd look to see what you could afford for pay rises, and you'd decide what the trade-off between the number of jobs you can have and the size of the pay rise you can give and try and strike a balance. Head teachers in lots of schools do have that kind of flexibility. Yeah. Remember, over half of teachers work in academies in the schools. They've got more flexibility about who, how they do their pay. But people have to understand there is only a finite pot of money to pay teachers with. Right. And if they're going to have bigger pay rises, unless the government can find more money from somewhere else by taking it away from another bit of the public sector, there's no more money. There is no magic money tree, I hate to say. It felt like it during COVID when there was a lot of money being printed and the government were able to issue lots of debt. But we're not there now. Mm. Um, it's, it's been hard. There is an extra £2.3 billion pounds coming into the school budget 
next year and again the year after that. That will take schools to a record level of funding in real terms at any point in history. Right. So we are coming through. I'm not saying money's going to be suddenly flush. Schools are doing a lot more now than they did historically. But there is a lot of money there. The question is how we get it in the right place at the right time. Yeah, but the trouble is, I mean, sometimes you listen to these public sector unions and you would think that they do believe there is a magic money tree because they want, as they call it, these uh, pay rises to be properly funded, meaning it doesn't come from inside the school. It comes from extra government money, which, as you quite rightly say, we don't have. But also, I think being very sort of, um, shall we say, economical with the truth, because while they don't admit to getting a pay rise, if you press them on it, they go, oh, yeah, well, we did have a pay rise in October, but it wasn't enough because it wasn't enough to keep up with inflation. It was still an eight or nine percent pay rise, which they which they've all had. And at the end of the day, I think they're being very, very disingenuous with their own pupils. And I think they're undermining their authority. They're undermining uh, their ability to do their own job. And I think they're turning the school kids against them. Well, that is always a risk when you do stuff like that. And you're actually right to recognise the fact that teachers did get at least a 5% pay rise, uh, backdated to September. And we mustn't forget that early teachers, so teachers starting their career, had a nearly 9% increase. Because one of the things the government is trying to do is get the starting salary of teachers outside of London up to £30,000 a year. It's never been so high. Mm. And they're doing that because we know that the research is quite strong but if you can increase the starting salary for teaching, you'll get more people coming in. And heaven knows we, ne we need that. Mm. We also know that lots of teachers, even if pay rises aren't as high as they want, teachers move up the pay scale each year for the first seven or eight years of their career. So even if pay was frozen, they'd actually go up the pay scale and they might get an eight or nine percent pay rise that way. Um, so there are lots of ways where teachers can be making more money. Rightly so. It should be a well-paid uh, profession and we also know that there is a challenge right now recruiting people into profession the number of people applying to teacher training courses at the moment is really really low it's below the targets we need pays an important part of that but let's be honest if there are hundreds of thousands of teachers in the media and the trade unions in the news all the time telling the world what a terrible job teaching mm. is is it really a surprise if more people or if fewer people are considering it as a profession i think it's a real shame here we should be pulling together right now. It's a difficult time. We should be pulling together and talking about what a fantastic job teaching is, whilst recognising there are challenges about workload, whilst recognising people would obviously want more money for their pay, but telling the whole world that it's a god-awful job, it doesn't pay enough and the conditions are awful, that's not the way you encourage more people to come into a profession. It's no. not the way you make the profession feel valued or make other people value it more. And most people in the real world would be able to name at least 10 jobs or possibly even 20 jobs that are, that are worse paid uh, with much worse conditions than being a teacher. Uh, and you don't get quite so many holidays either. You know what I mean? So, I mean, the real world's actual perception of teaching is not the same as teachers' perception already. So the more they bang well, on about yeah. how awful it is, the worse it gets for them. I said to one of my kids the other day, did they ever talk about it in school? And he said, no, we're told it's none of our business whether they go on strike. And I'm thinking, well, that's not a very good way. At least they should discuss it and explain to them why they're doing it. Well, I can kind of understand why it's going to be a tricky thing for teachers to discuss with their classes because then they put themselves at risk of being political or proselytising to them. What I would say is that Heaven all of forbid. us... Depending... They never do that. <laughs> well, all of us, whatever jobs we do, we all tend to think, don't we, that we're overworked and underpaid, that other people have it better. That is only natural. I did some research recently because you're often you're hearing people on strike saying this is about the teacher shortages that this government yeah, created it's rubbish literally every country in the world says that has a teacher shortage from i think just one or two think they've got enough it's a global thing it's it's a product of the fact that so many people have so many job opportunities these days that didn't exist 20 30 40 50 years ago now that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and challenge it but we mustn't just pretend it's because of the evil tories that have been in 
power because actually there's a teacher shortage in uh, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Yeah. And the last time I looked, they weren't run by you know the evil Tories. But we do need to get to grips about how we get more people into teaching. Pay is part of it. But a bigger part of it is the working conditions. And there is some amazing stuff going on in our schools right now about reducing the workload on teachers. And not a lot of people know this. In a, in a teacher workload survey that was done just before the um, pandemic kicked in, it found that on average, teachers were doing five fewer hours work a week than they were a few years before. Yeah. They were still doing long weeks. There was still more to go. But the government, the trade unions, head teachers, everyone have been looking at ways to get rid of the nonsense and just enable teachers to get on with the teaching and the important stuff. And it was working. That's what we need to get back to. So I hope that this, these strike quabbles can be solved soon. I'm sure at some point the government will have to come back with a deal which the unions go for. And then once it's done, can we get back to one, teaching kids really well and get them into school every day. Two, making teachers' workloads more manageable so they can be even better at their jobs. And three, all pulled together to rally around our kids to make sure that they no longer miss out on education, they catch up on where they were because of COVID, and actually we can all just get along. You know, kid, childhood is a wonderful time. School days should be amongst the best days of your life, and the adults in children's lives, particularly teachers, have an important part to play in that. Absolutely right. Couldn't agree more, Mark. Thank you very much indeed. Mark Lahane, Head of Education at the Centre for Policy Studies, former head teacher, of course, himself. But uh, you will be affected if you've got kids by the strikes this week. Um, I don't see what the justification is. I don't know why they're still doing it. Well, I do know why, because they want to try and get rid of the government. But they're not doing terribly well at it, are they? 0344 499 1000. Coming up, we'll talk to some of you. We'll take your calls. We'll also talk about the NHS and the latest horror story from the A&E departments. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We're going to change tack slightly. It's time to talk about law and order in this country because we talk about it an awful lot. The failures of the police in this country to properly police crime and to prevent crime and to even uh, investigate crime after it's happened. We're going to go down to Portsmouth now to meet Andy Kircher, who's with an organisation called the Portsmouth Eye, which is a collection uh, of uh, basically Portsmouth residents who have had enough of crime and who want to do something about it. Let's find out what it's all about. Andy, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, you've decided basically uh, not to take the law into your own hands, but just to kind of produce a, uh, a, a resident-based kind of patrol, really, isn't it? Tell us about it. Absolutely. So we started off about six months ago. Um, I started off on my own walking around my beautiful city of Portsmouth. Uh, I live next door to a woodied area and we were having a lot of crime in the area, drug taking, yeah. uh, drug activity, so on and so forth. So I decided as well as doing my day-to-day -day job as CCTV, I would go out, uh, wear high vis jacket and Oh. people asked us to go along their road check their road because cars were the police wasn't turning up to crimes in the area and so on and so forth so now we've got uh, about 14 or 15 residents across Portsmouth mm. where walk out on the streets with their dogs of the night time and uh, protect our city and it's working yeah. um we we noticed the crime level has dropped uh, quite considerably in the area and then all of a sudden we get two days where there's a lot of crime and then it goes back to nothing at all right. but say um i have every time i phone 999 yeah um out of the 14 in the last two weeks 
yeah, only two police officers turn up on those 14 crimes. Right. So would you say, I mean, I'm told that tenfold was the increase in crime in Portsmouth over, say, the course of the last last year or so. Um, and is it what your police would call sort of low-level crime, which is terrible for everybody else, but just not, not taken very seriously by them? Just low-level. We're having people um, stealing cars. We've got uh, knife offences, um, drug taking, motorbikes, break-ins. Um, I, I, the road I live in, the road next door to me, uh, yesterday two people tried going in through their back garden to steal their push bikes out of their back garden. Uh, it's happening in the daytimes as well as the night times, and we've upped the patrols throughout the day and the night times. Right. So do you find that just your presence on the streets, dressed as if you are not really looking like police, but you're looking official. Um, is that having the effect that it's, it's desired then? Absolutely. If if you if you see... We've got a slightly sticky um, you... situation. Uh, we'll, try, we'll try and get you... We'll just stop you there for a second, Andy, because we'll just try and get you on a slightly better line if we can, um, because we want to hear more about Andy Kircher and his basic kind of... Um, idea of fighting crime combating crime not by you know going in mob handed not by trying to do harm to people but basically just by doing there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. By doing a proper patrol around a particular area. Andy, sorry, I think we got you back. We just we were just yep. sticking a little bit there. Sorry, go ahead. So, so um, one of my colleagues, Neil, individuals the other day, he looked across at them and they literally put down the the, the metal bar they had. Mm. So it is happening. They're seeing us out on the streets. We've got high-vis body, body cams, our high-vis jackets on, torches, and we are... And what are the police saying, Andy, to you guys? And... No, have we lost him again? I think we may have lost him again. The atmosphere down in Portsmouth, obviously, is not good. But you will probably be listening to this thinking, it's a bit like that where I live. It's a bit like that where my friends live. It's a bit like that where my family live. Because there's an awful lot of parts of Britain that are just as Andy Kircher has described. Slightly lawless, people stealing cars, taking drugs, breaking into people's houses, doing all sorts of things to try uh, and make it impossible to live a decent life. And I'm not surprised that Andy has got success in doing this. Andy, I think we've got you, but I just wanted to ask you what the police reaction has been um, to your group. It's been okay um, across the whole. Just before Christmas, there was a £100,000 sports car stolen off a drive in Southsea. Mm. And we used the powers of our patrols and CCTV, and we actually got the car back. That's extraordinary. Very... You know, they were out there and they 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 got the car and they got three of the four victims inside the car. So, you know, at the end of the day, working alongside the police does help. 
um, we just want them to to basically um, when we're phoning up, we're only phoning up on proper crime. Yeah. There was a like the other day doing a hundred miles an hour on a on a public area in Hillsy. Yeah. We nine 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 five telephone calls went through to nine nine nine, and they said it's a common occurrence. We're not sending anybody. Yeah, ridiculous. I mean, surely they should want the registration number of the car so they could go and find the driver. Yeah, but it was a, a motorbike, a scrambler, so okay. there is no on it. Oh, I see. So, so it's a real problem. But, I mean, obviously what you're proving, though, Andy, is that if you are visible on the street, people will commit less crime. Being a... I think we'll have to leave it there. Andy Kershaw there from the Portsmouth Eye. Not much different, really, from what I've seen in some parts of, uh, of London, where if you go to some expensive parts of London, like, for example, say, Belgravia, Mayfair, um, you go to Hampstead, Highgate, all of those places, they have individual sort of private police patrols, if you like, and many of them actually sit outside properties in what looks like police cars, but they're clearly private police cars. Now, this is something uh, that we've seen in other parts of the world. I think it's something that we'll probably we'll see more of as time goes by, because as the police become less and less, shall we say, worthwhile in terms of fighting crime, more and more people will say, we're going to have our own police force. We're just not going to be able to rely on the police anymore. And if it takes you five calls to even get answered on a 999 call, you actually got no chance of any police turning up. There's another story today saying that research shows 20% uh, increase in the number of mental health incidents that police attended last year across 29 different forces. Now, you might say, well, that's what they now have to do as part of their job. But if they're dealing with mental health incidents which are crimes. They're still crimes, aren't they? So, I mean, that shouldn't really change the way that they police everything else. So according uh, to figures that we have for England and Wales, 485,000 times was the number of mental health incidents that police were called to over the year uh, in 29 different forces. But if that is a crime that they're investigating, then that is entirely within what they should be doing as their job, isn't it? 0344 499 1000. Uh, I've got this from somebody who doesn't give a name. Mike, I'm fuming for the Northern Ireland people, shaking hands and thanking Ursula van der Pumpkin for basically letting Northern Ireland leave the European Union, followed by a meeting and greeting our king. It's like having to accept an apology from the school bully and rewarding her with an audience with the king. Um, Chile says the Northern Ireland Protocol is still there. Nothing has really changed. Sunak had every intention of selling out the British people there. There's still an Irish sea border. There are still checks on goods and also still most EU laws. So what has changed? Well, there's not mostly still EU laws. I think some 3% of the laws in Northern Ireland will be EU laws. And there will not be checks on most goods going into Northern Ireland because most of the goods that go from Great Britain into Northern Ireland are, in fact, ending their destination. Uh, their journey ends in Northern Ireland. So they will be going through the green channels. There will be hardly any checks on them at all, if any. So I think that part of it has got to be an improvement. But only for the people in Northern Ireland and for the people who do business with Northern Ireland, which is a very small amount of economic... Wealth, you'd have to say, compared to the GDP of the entire country, which has always been the reason why it's always been difficult to get people to actually understand why it matters. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. This is, of course, the one place to be to find all of the things that you need to get through the day. And here's Laura Dodsworth to help you along with all of that. Have a very good night. Good morning. Good morning. Say. Good morning to you nice too. Nice to see you. Yep, let's put the record straight. Let's yep. get started. Go on. 
Well, um, let's get straight to let's it. Let's just get let's just get straight to it because um, I want to talk about who fact checks the fact checkers. Yes, good three, point. Three years ago, to the week, mm. a group of scientists had a letter published in the Lancet that said there was no way that COVID nineteen originated from a lab. Yes. And this was uh, picked up by the world's media, obviously politicians and fact checkers. Yes. And this would have been about a month before the lockdown, right? Because it was around about March 20 something, wasn't it? Yes. So for some reason, in those very early days, extremely bold claims were made to claim that COVID-19 couldn't possibly have originated from a lab. And instead, it was given an animal origin. It's probably come from the a wet bat. markets, from bats. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about what was what was happening there and what we know now. Was this week the U.S. Energy Department has joined the FBI in saying they're moderately confident that the virus originated from a lab. Now I've never claimed to be an expert. No. I'm not a scientist. I have no idea. But I think there's a kind of a common sense position. You think, well, there's an institute of virology in yeah. a city, and then a virus starts in the city. Could there be a connection? Mm. It would seem obvious that there could be a connection, yes. even if we didn't know for sure. So it's interesting that the position at the time was that there couldn't possibly be a connection. Right. Now, in leaked emails, we know that a band of Western scientists were saying that they were pretty confident, too, that the virus might have come right. from a lab, but they didn't want to disrupt scientific and international relations with China. Right. And there were plenty of people saying things like that, but a lot of people were also trying to shut that all down, weren't they? Saying that that couldn't be possibly spoken about. If mm. you wrote about it, uh, you were kind of, you know, looked at querulously. If you put it on an internet site, if you put it on YouTube, it was probably shut down. You know, all of that was going on, wasn't it? Absolutely. I've actually brought a few headlines with me because I think it's really interesting to look back at, at how the media actually described this theory, which now US government departments are saying is probably true. Yeah. What, what we're seeing here is a dam breaking. Right. You know, it's just beginning now. So let's let's look back at what people were saying three years ago. Forbes ran an article, well, not quite a fact check, but an article with the headline, the Wuhan lab leak hypothesis is a conspiracy theory. I remember reading not science. that. I remember that one. So that's a that's a highly reputable international news site saying that the lab leak theory is a conspiracy mm. theory. PolitiFact ran a robust fact check, which it had to withdraw as early as May 21. Excellent. And who you, are PolitiFact anyway? I mean, these people set themselves up as fact checkers and you go, and what qualifications do you have for that? Well, oh, you've got a beard and you're a bit of a dweeb. Well, you, sometimes you have to look at where they're funded by, you know, who they're funded by as well. US Today fact check asserted that there was no evidence that the virus was created in a Chinese laboratory and that researchers believed it emerged from nature. Mm. American broadcaster NPS tweeted that it was nothing more than a baseless conspiracy theory. So you can see the world's media sort of joined forces with this small band of Western scientists and politicians in determining that this was just a conspiracy theory. Three years on, like I said, the dam's breaking and it's not. I think what we have to take from this... While I'm not saying people should dive down rabbit holes and believe every conspiracy no, out there. but that's why you need people like me to tell them what's right and what's not. You and me, darling. Yes. Right, so the thing is, let's, you know, let's not dive down rabbit holes, but do your own research. Yes. Nobody's well, fact-checking no, well, you know the fact-checkers. Only do your own research if you know how to do it, because the part of the problem here is an awful lot of people don't know how to do their own research. They do their own research and they think they've found something which is legitimate because sometimes things which are not legitimate are very well disguised as things that are. And other times things that are disguised as legitimate are not. 
But I think the point is that scepticism and an open mind are very important. Very much sure, so. Sure, you don't want to fall down every every rabbit hole. Right. But this is yet another nail in the coffin for the robustness of fact Absolutely. The, I mean, I don't go around believing things that people tell me, whether they're in government. I mean, what, watching Rishi Sunak today in Belfast, uh, mm. over in County Antrim there, telling us all about how great everything is and how he's lifted all these families out of poverty and how the government will continue to support you in your quest to pay your electricity bill. It's all rubbish. That's not happening. You know, the, 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 the way the money is coming in to every household at the moment, that's going to stop unless he's made a breaking news story that nobody knew that in the budget suddenly we're all going to get money. You know, politicians milk the truth. They, they, they don't tell you the truth. They tell you a bit of the truth and then they twist the rest of it. Well, no one's really surprised that politicians bend the truth a bit like that in order to suit their messages. You know, they pick values that they think the population mm. wants to hear. They then adapt it to what they want, uh, you know, how they want to manipulate you, yes. what suits their message. But this is really about scientific knowledge. Right. The important thing to remember is that knowledge evolves and and in fact, you know, today's facts will be superseded by tomorrow's facts. In mm. fact, in science, they talk about the half-life of facts. Right. And in different disciplines, they put the half-life at different lengths. So, for instance, in psychology, the half-life of facts is known to be about seven years, right. which means that you can have one theory. Everyone says it's fact. Everyone says it's good. Several years down the line, in the case of psychology, it's seven. It's superseded by yeah. a totally new fact, in inverted commas. But you see, my question, if indeed it turns out that this did come from a lab leak, is what were they doing in the lab? That's my question. And nobody's well, answering that question because if they were manufacturing a virus, then you have to have another question is why? Well, what think, were they planning to do with it? And was it just a research opportunity? Those are really valid questions. And I think that takes us back to these, these leaked emails that Matt mm. Ridley reported yeah. on. You know, he's got this great book um, called... Oh, I can't believe I can't remember the name. Look up Matt Ridley. He Origin, wrote this great book. I think it's called. Could be. The Origins of the... the virus. Um, anyway, apologies not for the title of his book. I feel terrible. Don't worry. But the thing is, in these leaked emails, they're talking about not wanting to disrupt relationships mm. with China and also to not confidence in science. You know, naturally, most people would be a little bit concerned to hear about gain-of-function research, making viruses more deadly in labs. It sounds like the um, the plot of a, a Bond film gone wrong, yes. doesn't it? It's, it's, a, it's a disarming idea mm. that labs are creating dangerous viruses. I think there was something else that went along with it at the time. Look at how people pounced on the animal origin idea and if we think about all the you know the the vegan activists and the climate crisis ideologues that you and i have talked about before they love this theory yeah. because they like to see people as being separate from the natural world something mm. something where you know any kind any kind of way we interact when it's um farming animals selling yeah. them in wet markets eating or eating them, them yeah. eating them can lead to danger yes. so there's a, there's a there's a way that certain group of utopianists slash dystopianists loved this theory because what it did was push along their own agenda. Mm. So always be sceptical, always be open-minded. And remember that fact-checking is not as robust as it claims also, to be. Also, you can't just call something something and then make out that that's what it does, which is all the fact-checkers have done. Because, you know, when I was a journalist many moons ago, there was no such thing as a fact-checker. Mm. You didn't need a fact-checker. In fact, the first time I heard the phrase was when the National Enquirer used to have them. Because the National Enquirer said to people, and it was known as a sort of very racy um, American sort of tabloid magazine came out every week. They would quite often run stories about people who claimed to have been abducted. And their fact checkers only wanted you to say that you'd spoken to somebody who believed they were abducted. That was a good enough fact check for them to run the story. You didn't have to make out that they actually had been abducted. Mm -hmm. And that's where fact checking is a problem because that's not a fact. You've spoken to somebody who declares that something happened. It doesn't mean it happened. 
That's true. So people are kind of confirming their own bias. Yeah. It's almost like a form of activism journalism. But there's another thing going wrong that really what is pushing journalism along on online these days, because let's be honest, you know, the main newsstand now is social media. Mm. What's pushing journalism along is emotion. Yeah. And it and that's primarily fear. And actually that leads into a story that's in the Daily Skeptic today about two studies which have come out which um, show that negative headlines in news and negative lyrics in songs mm. have increased dramatically since 2020. Yeah. I think if you think about it, it won't be a surprise. Do you ever get the feeling that the world's just full of bad news these days? I do. Everything is doom and gloom. Mm. Well, this is literally reflected in the headlines. Um, so one study that looked at newspaper headlines found that um, words which relate to anger, fear, sadness and disgust have become more common since 2010 and words which are neutral or relate to joy have decreased. Mm. So that study was um, international and using machine learning and so we know now empirically that headlines are more doom and gloom than they used to be. I think there's an awful lot to that. But I suppose you might say if you went all the way back into sort of the halcyon days, as I call them, Fleet Street, you know, bad news almost sold more than good news did because we used to do these focus groups and people mm. would come in and say, we'd like to see more good news in the paper. And you go, well, what do you call good news? And nobody knows what it is, you know, because mm. people aren't really interested in good news. I am. Do you know, these, you? these days I, I'm absolutely gasping for good news in the media. I feel really turned off from... from I mean, I always, well, I always so try and bring a little so levity to the show just because yeah. it's nice to have a little bit of a laugh. But just before we leave the COVID scenario, I remember back in January of 2020, the World Health Organisation telling everybody that don't worry about this COVID thing you're hearing so much about because it will not jump between the species. And if it's in the animal community, it will never jump to, uh, to humans. And that was what they said as recently as January 2020. Fact-checking. Fact-checkers checked it, and it was true, In apparently. a capsule. They're, they're and gonna, right then it was true. Well, and look what they did with masks. You know, the flip-flopping on yeah. masks. Now we're at the stage where the Cochrane Review has mm. said, effectively, masks do very little to right. halt the transmission of influenza-like viruses and COVID. Mm. And isn't it interesting how some of the, you know, the big media outlets have not covered the Cochrane Review and they haven't covered this Wuhan lab leak? Do you think maybe that they themselves are embarrassed could that they be. got it so wrong Could a few be. years ago. Yeah, absolutely right. They believed the wrong people. Always a danger. Always mm. a really, really bad idea. But, I mean, that's like, again, like Bill Clinton. You know, I believed it at the time, so it couldn't have possibly been a lie. One of the great excuses used by husbands all over the world. Oh, stop. Anyway, never mind. Um, have you got any good news? I, I do. I have got some really good news. Yes. It's nice to finish with good news. We're not finished oh, yet. Uh, no, Don't no. worry. We've got okay. plenty of time. All right. Well, in that case, let me you just go back a little bit okay. to your levity, because you know your show, Plank of the Week, yes. which I was on last week. Yes. I love going on it. You see, I think that's a really good way, actually, of airing the bad news, yeah. but with some humour. But have some fun Because it's with human it. nature. Well, we like is. to lampoon. Yes. We like to ridicule. And that's that's an example of how you can do bad news, yes. but in a way that brings a bit and of I'm lightness also telling, to the I'm subject. I'm telling anyone that wants to know that it was your intervention uh, with Roald Dahl and the whole business of Puffin making these ridiculous changes to his books that made them reverse their decision. Oh, yeah, not the Queen. Nothing is, to do is with the Queen. Is it all no. Lord Dodsworth? No, it was all down to you and Plank of the Week, clearly. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you. I'll take that. Um... 
yeah, we we need we need a bit more lampooning and a bit more ridiculing of some of the crazy things yes. that are happening. So that's that's what well, the, you and I today's, like to do. My, isn't my it? favourite piece of levity and ridiculousness today. I haven't actually played the clip yet. Is Sadiq Khan claiming uh, on a video that you can't buy any tomatoes in London because of Brexit? First of all. The shortage of tomatoes in some supermarkets is not down to Brexit. Secondly, to say there are no tomatoes in London is a nonsense. I can guarantee you I'll walk across to the Borough Market right now and there'll be tomatoes everywhere. Well, do you know, that whole nudge thing has worked because I went into Lidl at the weekend, lots of tomatoes, no flipping root vegetables. They've no. all gone. Well, so they've all Teresa eaten the turnips. Coffees of, literally, I mean, I don't buy turnips. I can't bear them. I'm not them. fond of turnips. But there were no, no sweet potatoes, turnips, parsnips, Swedes, none That's of them. That's all good news as far as uh, I'm concerned. But lots of tomatoes. That's fine. I don't like root vegetables very much. Do you think, though, that part of that whole story might be about introducing the word rationing? Because a really cynical part of me <laughs> notices how often the word rationing is yeah. coming into these media stories, almost as though we're being prepped for ration books. Yeah, but we're not, though, are we? I, I mean... really hope not. Do you remember Joanna Lumley last year was talking about how... Um, she, she was saying that maybe, you know, we're too soft and we should have rations again mm. in order to deal with the climate crisis. Yeah, well, it's always You'll good to hear from... I mean, I do like Joanna Lumley, but she's this. probably not an expert on the climate crisis. I'd probably hazard a guess. Well, I'd hazard a guess that lots of the experts on the climate crisis mm. aren't experts The main reason that, that there are less tomatoes, and it's not a shortage. I mean, we did it last uh, Christmas, shortage of the day, because every day there was a story in the papers that mm. we were going to run out of everything, including turkeys, which never happened, including chickens because of the bird flu. You know, everything was going to run out. Um, and none of it did, funnily mm. enough. And so I think the media has to be blamed for quite a lot of that kind of nonsense. On chickens, I would just like to speak up for chickens. Would you? Actually, I would, okay. because chickens are Free enduring. range or just all, of, all chickens? Mate, there are no free range chickens at the moment. The mm. problem with chickens is they're all enduring their own form of lockdown There was a chicken hell. lockdown, yeah. It, no, it's still going on. And they can only go and to it's... the pub in groups of six as well. <laughs> But they better not be eating pork pies. That's no. wrong. No, these poor chickens, and I think all the outdoor birds are having to be kept indoors because yeah. of avian flu, and and because once again no. of Neil Ferguson well, and his crazy modelling. Yeah, because they say they have to be kept indoors, but if they've got avian flu, surely you're going to infect more of them if they're indoors, aren't they? Well, it's to prevent them from being infected by wild birds. But mm. I, I visited a small holding um, in January. In fact, mm. uh, there'll be a feature about that in the Sunday Times shortly. And I was having a really big chat with the small holders about. Out, mm. the fact that all their birds are being kept indoors you know various nice sheds you know life's not terrible for them but the problem that these farmers were telling me is that if you keep chickens and birds indoors they're actually more susceptible to all kinds of other illnesses yes. and diseases because that is not a natural life right. so there's this myopic like humans, focus though. exactly like lockdown right. and like humans there's this myopic focus on one disease but they're all getting other yeah. diseases because they're trapped in yeah. Plus, it's cruel. What's it's cruel. wrong with these let people? Let them out. Yeah, let them Free out. Free the chickens. Exactly. And if they get bird flu and die, um, you know, that's all part of the natural cycle of life, isn't it? Well, of course, the fear, according to Professor Pantsdown, is that, you know, them... we're all going to get... The avian flu might, hasn't yet, but might jump into humans and it'll be the next pandemic. Can you give them a COVID passport so they can go out? Oh, stop. You know, there'll be certain people who are dying to vaccinate chickens, oh I'm sure. God. But anyway, on to the good news. Yeah, time for so, good news. Here so, it is. Good news, so, ladies and gentlemen. So the good news, I think it's good news, yeah. is that in the Isle of Man, they have paused sex and relationship education. And the reason they've done it is there was a school, Queen Elizabeth II school in the Isle of Man, that had a drag queen visit yeah. and gave the children totally inappropriate and unscientific information. So, for instance, one thing the drag queen said was that um, there are 73 genders 
And one child objected and said there are only mm. two. And the drag queen said they were upset and sent the child out of the room. You're joking. I am not. That's ridiculous. And given Shouldn't the, it be called the Isle of Them, by the way? The Isle of Them. Not anymore, hopefully, no. because common sense is now reigning on the Isle of Man. <laughs> but that's a good one. Um, and the other thing is, I won't mention what these children were taught about due to the time of day. No. I think it would be sensitive for your readers. Okay. But the drag queen did not think it was sensitive for the children. And certain sex and acts... And these were young children. These are primary school children. Right. Certain sex acts were explained to the children that goes way beyond what we think of as being drag time story yeah, yeah. hour, which I already think is rather strange. Because all the people that defend this stuff, right? All the people that d- defend this stuff always go, oh, you won't like going to the pantomime this year then, will you? Well, that's not what happens at pantomimes. You know, people who dress up as women who are not women in pantomimes are not explaining sex acts to people who are underage. Mm. So it's not really the same thing, is it? Of course it's not. I think the bigger issue with this story is that parents want to know what materials their children are being shown with regards to sex education. And schools aren't doing that. They're not sharing the information with parents. Miriam Cates, the MP, has said parents must be must be informed about what their children yeah. are learning at school right. in sex education Particularly, classes. Yeah. Also, what genius thought it was a great idea to have a sex education class from a drag queen? It's odd, isn't it's, it? It's not. It's really it's not odd. A very good idea. And I think what we have principle. now, what we have now, is we have it. We have a group of children who were quite upset by this lesson. Yeah. No child would be sent out of the question no. for stating the absolute fact that there are male and female yeah. sexes. Well, no, for no reason should they be thrown out of a class in which you're supposed to be learning about something because you have a different view of the person teaching. No, and the other thing because is because you, you know, question it. What sort of school is that? If you want to assert that there are multiple genders, then Make that assertion, back it up with your theory, but it is not fact. No. It is not evidence-based fact. And, I, and I'd suggest it doesn't even really belong in a classroom. No. That's my opinion. So now that sex education has been paused while the Isle of Man reviews the sex education. And I think this is actually a great win mm. for common sense. And um, it's, a, it's a rare piece of good news. It is a rare piece of good news. And thank you very much for bringing it to us. And we're pretty much out of time. So we've done it well, haven't we, today? We have. We've, we've gone from surprising news to bad news to good news. Yeah. We've run the whole gamut. We have. And pretty soon there'll be um, some other news as well. well. I can't tell you what that is because we don't know. Uh, Laura, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. I, keep, I always say this when I see you now. Your new book's coming out soon, isn't it? Do you want to give it a plug? Oh, go on then. Um, it's there called, it is. Look, Free Your Mind. Look thank at that. you so much. It's called Free Your Mind. It's out in June. And, you know, you know, we started talking about fact-checking today. This is a book that will help people to know their own mind. If you mm. want to know your own mind, you have to understand how people are trying to influence your mind and this is the book i hope will give people it's it's like a it's like a field manual yes. for the information battlefield we're living in i hope it will equip people to know their own mind excellent good stuff laura dodsworth will be back of course next week we'll be back after this um i think we'll take some of your calls shall we this is talk tv welcome back to the independent republic of mike graham we have sashayed into the afternoon and it's not very nice out there it's a bit cold uh, it's a bit gray uh, it's a bit manky, as we used to say, uh, out there. But we will do our level best to keep you warm, uh, to keep you informed, and to keep you, of course, full of the joys of spring. Because, after all, uh, apparently now Rishi Sunak has saved the world. Uh, he's managed to get a Brexit deal done with Ursula van der Leyen. Uh, never mind the fact that she apparently could have done it at any point over the last two or three years. Uh, supposedly now you can get your sausages from England into Northern Ireland. So that's good news if you're in Belfast. You can also now get your seed potatoes over there. I can't believe that Rishi Sunak actually spent most of the afternoon yesterday uh, describing pieces of food, articles that you might cook 
uh, in the House of Commons, making out that he'd done a great thing. This morning he was in Belfast, in County Antrim, uh, saying that uh, everything is uh, lovely in the garden. Well, it's not, actually, because... Uh, the garden has been concreted over uh, and has now been rented out for people to park their cars on. We can't afford to drive them anymore because petrol's got so expensive and the congestion charge is killing everybody. Apart from that, everything's great, though. Let's talk to Sebastian Gorka, former White House advisor to Donald Trump and, of course, host of America First, which is not only a great show, it's also a podcast. Sebastian, a very, very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. So Rishi Sunak screwing things up again and the weather's <laughs> Thanks for the update. Yeah, Mike. I mean, you know, apparently Brexit's all been solved now. It's all been done, dusted, everything's fine. The fact is that you can't get any tomatoes, though, in some shops because the electricity in this country is now so expensive. You have to take out a mortgage to switch on the lights, you know. Um, and Sunak keeps telling us that he's taken more families out of poverty than anybody else. Well, why were they in poverty? Because of 12 years of what uh, Richard Tice calls the con-socialist government. Yeah, um, when I was in the UK, we had a phrase for that. What a bloody shower. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, for years now, they've been telling us how much money they've been helping us out with, but actually it's our own money that they take off us and then give us back. Where, where are the real conservatives? Are they just running radio shows and TV yes. shows? Yes, basically, yeah, because it's become um, illegal to be a conservative now uh, in the in the world of politics, because first of all, you have to be a slave to net zero. Uh, you have to want to get rid of all carbon um, in the in the world. You can't drive a diesel car or a petrol car. You can't believe in uh, fossil fuels of any kind. You don't want to put oil anywhere. You can't dig for coal. The su most successful economy growing in Europe. Do you know where it is? Poland. Why? Because they Why dig because they dig for coal. And they bloody work. I mean, can we just be clear here, whatever else you want to talk about, let's doff our caps to the crazy radical leftists who manage the biggest con in human history. It's, it's the fact that we are carbon-based life forms. Yes. Okay, and they've said carbon is bad. Yes. And CO2, the thing that you need to live, that plants need to grow, CO2 is a pollutant. You've got, got to give them credit, Mike, to, to convince yeah. us that those two whoppers is pretty impressive. Right. Well, somebody pointed out to me today that um, uh, the, the Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, thankfully that's all he is at the moment, and I don't think his political ambitions are going to go any further, has complained that the air quality in London is so bad um, that 4,000 people die every single year. Therefore, he's not going to change the air quality. He's going to charge you to breathe the air. So as soon as you get in your car, he doesn't want you to stop driving. You can drive, but you've got to pay. But as it was pointed out to me this week, apparently this uh, last night and the night before, you could see the northern lights. Now, if the air quality in London is that bad, how the hell can you see the northern lights? Mike, don't allow facts to get in the way of politics. <laughs> no better. You should know better. Now, let's, let's move on to, to uh, Mr. DeSantis, uh, the, uh, the man who wants to be the next president of the United States of America. We've got a little clip uh, to show you, uh, which involves a member of the Bush family. He's been a really effective governor. He's young. I think we're on the verge of a generational change in our politics. I kind of hope so. I think it's time for a more forward-leaning, future-oriented uh, conversation in our politics as well. And who better to do it? than uh, someone who's been outside of Washington, who's governed effectively, who I think has shown that Florida could be a model for the future of our country. Now, for those of you who haven't recognised that man, that is Jeb Bush um, endorsing Ron DeSantis. Um, the, the world's gone a bit bonkers here, it seems to me, doesn't it? 
when I when my producer <laughs> found that clip yesterday, my first reaction was, "Oh my gosh, how did President Trump get Jeb Bush to do that?" Because th- this is like the death knell. This is this is this is the headshot for Ron DeSantis. Think about this. You've got a. What is Fox News doing with that weird rousing music? Yeah. Un- Interview. Is it is it an interview or is it a, is it a PR stunt? And then you have the most unsuccessful doyen of the conservative dynasty that is the Bushes, who, by the way, have been in power back in the early nineties with you know Papa yeah. and with uh, Jeb's brother. That person is lecturing us conservatives on the future of conservatism. This is the same guy who, during the campaign when he was running against my old boss, was so bad why the president had to call him low-energy Jeb. In the middle of a speech, he tried to make a joke, and then he said, this is where you laugh. I mean, th- this is the I mean, guy. These are, I mean, this family, right? I mean, I mean, if it wasn't for the Clintons, they'd probably be the worst... Um, political dynasty in uh, existence because first of all they tried to convince everybody they were from Texas when everybody knows that in fact they're all Yaleys they all really want to be in New Haven Connecticut they don't want to be anywhere near Texas you know your politics I do they they reinvented themselves as these Texans but they're from Connecticut yeah the classic carpetbagger coming south so, yeah. And these people are trying to lecture. This is why President Trump won in 2015, because of political dynasties yeah. like Hillary Clinton's, like Jeb Bush's. And now, I mean, this is this is very bad. If Ron DeSantis doesn't want to look like a fake conservative, this is not good for his campaign, which, by the way, he hasn't even announced yeah. yet. But everybody knows he's running against President Trump. Yes. And how is President Trump these days? Because, um, oh. you know, we miss him. Yeah, well, that's a great question. Uh, what is it? Five hours away, three o'clock Eastern, so 8 p.m., 8.30 p.m. your time. He's going to be live on my show, America First, Tremendous. so you'll get an update straight from the horse's mouth. Fantastic. Well, I'm hoping to be on your show. I was, I was going to be on it yeah. today, but I can't, unfortunately, so I can't share the platform with Donald Trump, which is a pity, <laughs> uh, but I'll be on it next week. But um, we see also this week that Jill Biden... Uh, who's now apparently taken on some role as an uh, unpaid envoy for the US government. I hear she's off to Africa uh, to go and do some bidding for something or other. Uh, she's saying that uh, if Joe wants to run for president uh, in the next election, then she's happy for him to do so. That sounds a bit reckless to me, given that when I watched him being interviewed, and you've put the clip on your, uh, on your Twitter about the Ohio incident, he couldn't seem to remember who he'd spoken to about it. Yeah, think about this. So in this interview, uh, the wife of the oldest president we've ever had, who would be 82 if he ran for the next term, mm. um, this woman says, oh, yeah, 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 he's running. And we, the biggest story you know, outside of the Chinese surveillance balloon, the biggest story in America over the last three weeks is this massive rail disaster with toxic chemicals mm. into the soil, this fire in, in Ohio. And somebody asked him on live TV, he says, so have you spoken to the mayor of Mm. East Palestine, this town that is, you know, under this toxic cloud? Uh, I I, I don't know. What? (laughs) How how does the most powerful man in the world who has a man-made disaster on his doorstep not know if he's spoken to the mayor of that town? It tells you everything we need to know. know, I'm not not a doctor. I'm a PhD in political science. But there are some cognitive issues there. 
Also, do you remember um, the hoo-ha? Because I do. Uh, when Hurricane Katrina happened, and, and yeah. George Bush didn't go um, to have a look at the uh, at the disaster area, but then flew over it. You know, the media were all over him like a rash because he was Republican president. But look at what's happening here. Biden hasn't been anywhere near East Palestine, and yet nobody's saying anything. Well, not only that, his, uh, you know, the, the individual in the cabinet they're so proud of being his homosexual minister of transport, it took him 20 days. It took him nigh on three weeks. This is a rail disaster. And the guy in charge of transport takes almost three weeks to even show his face. And when he gets there, mm. Pete Buttigieg looks like David out of the village people in his little safety vest and his hard hat. Right. It was a joke. It was pathetic. Didn't do it. Oh, and by the way, what does President Trump do the day before? He rolls in with food, with clean water, goes to the McDonald's. If you haven't seen it, it's an amazing video. It's on my feed, Seb Gorker on Twitter. Goes in, he says, I want lunch for the, all the police in this town. I'm buying lunch for everybody in, in, in the fire brigade. Oh, and anybody who's in the restaurant, I'm buying you another lunch as well. Right. It was crap. But this is the trouble, isn't it? He's got the common touch. He's never, yeah. he never lost it. But none of these yeah. other bozos seem to have a clue. Well, this is what I like to remind my fellow Americans who aren't immigrants like I am, and I find it quite amusing, that what did we do in 2016? For the first time in American history, since the founding, since the Revolutionary War, we elected an outsider. Every president from George Washington to Obama, every single one, irrespective of party, was a senator, a congressman, a former governor, or a retired general. Hmm. President Trump, he hadn't even run for county dog catcher. Yeah. First time he runs for public office, it's president and he wins. So what's that? That's a big up yours to everybody in the political elite, what my old colleague Steve Bannon calls the uniparty. And I think the uniparty is something you're suffering from in the UK. You have two parties that are indistinguishable. Yeah. Well, we've I mean, we've got we've got the DUP, who are the Ulster um, uh, unionists, who are very, very worried about this new deal that's been signed with Ursula von der Leyen, as I like to call her, uh, and Rishi Sunak. That could have been signed years ago, but for some reason now it's OK. But they're going to look at this deal and see what's good about it, what's bad about it. Keir Starmer, the opposition leader, has already said he's going to vote for it. He doesn't even know what's in it. That tells you they all went to the same schools. They all hang, hung out together. These people care about one thing, their own personal aggrandizement, their own power. It's time to get back to the age of, you know, a little bit more Brexit, a little bit more Nigel. Let's have the voice of the people on your side of the pond and in ours. Yeah running the country. Well, there's an awful lot of disquiet here about the Labour Party and the Tory Party, because as you say, um, there is no, con there are no Conservative values anymore. If you don't believe what they tell you to believe, you're a pariah. And let's finish up with the Wuhan leak, shall we? Um, you know, the thing that they said could not possibly ever be true in a million years. Anybody yeah. who says it is practically a criminal, uh, certainly a conspiracist. I mean, it's unbelievable, isn't it? Well, it is, because come on, let's have a, a dose of common sense here. Uh, we said, oh, what, there's the only level four biodefense lab in communist China in the same city where COVID erupts. Well, maybe the two things were connected. We were called conspiracy theorists, extremists. Now we have the second agency. First, we had the FBI. Now we have the Department of Energy say, yeah, it probably leaked from the lab. So what happens to all the press, including the BBC? I did a summary yesterday. Yeah. The Forbes 
uh, New York Times telling us for two years, oh, no, no, this is a Trump derangement syndrome craziness. This is conspiracies. And what about Fauci that we now know, thanks to the emails that have been leaked, Fauci was spent sending millions of dollars through a NGO, through a quango called the Eco Alliance, to the Wuhan lab. What, what, is, what is the most highly paid U.S. bureaucrat doing spending our tax dollars funding a communist biodefense lab? We need to get to the bottom of it. We control the House in, in Congress now, and we need to get that man mm. on the stand under oath. Yeah, I look forward to seeing that. Finally, I mean, you just mentioned the FBI there. I completely forgot about them. How's their investigation going into the stuff that they, they took from uh, the Trump Mar-a-Lago estate? How's that all coming along? You mean, oh, no, he took the nuclear codes. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. Oh, I mean, that's surely that's national security, grade one, investigation needed, you know, people brought to justice quickly. What's going on? Uh, it's weird you should ask that. That kind of has died on the vine, especially since we found three different instances of Joe Biden having top secret materials. Ah, yeah. not, not in his home. In the house his son rented for him, Hunter Biden, mm. the crack addict, next to his car in the garage next to the old paint tins. He had the top secret materials next to his Corvette in the garage. Strangely enough, as soon as that happened, the, the other story just uh, floated away, yeah. Mike. Amazing. Such a shame that to waste um, you know public money that way, doing those kind of raids, just as if uh, you only want to have be seen doing it on TV, and then nothing comes of it. Shocking, really. In, in a facility, by the way, where they said, oh, it was dangerous to have those documents there, which is guarded 24-7 by the Secret Service. Mm. So you're telling me my old boss's home in Florida, Mar-a-Lago, with 24-hour-a-day Secret Service protection is somehow a bad place to keep secret documents. By the way, he is a former president who maintains his clearances till the day he dies. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, listen, we'll look forward to catching you at eight o'clock tonight, uh, UK time. Donald Trump uh, on Sebastian Gorka's show, America First. Uh, I'll be on it next week as well. What an extraordinary state of affairs uh, that America should be finally finding itself in the same kind of bizarre place uh, as this country at this moment in time. 0344 499 1000 coming up. We're heading back to Northern Ireland to get the latest from Stormont. Uh, Holly Hudson is there for us. We'll find out uh, what's being said now that people are starting to read some of this documentation. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.